This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. If you're new here, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors, and uh, I just want to join Rob earlier and say thanks for being here. Uh, it's, a, it's really a joy to, uh, to have you with us. Um, we are working our way through the book of Nehemiah. Today, if you, don't, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Nehemiah 6. If you don't have a Bible, then under the seat in front of you is a Bible. You can open up to page 228, and you'll be able to track with us today. Occasionally, when we are moving through a book of the Bible, like that's typically what we do is we teach through books of the Bible. Occasionally, when we do that, um, a subject will come up that sort of touches a nerve in the life of the church. And uh, I believe that's what happened last week. As we went through Nehemiah 6 and saw this narrative of fear and how fear works in our lives sort of emerge from the text. So I thought it would be wise to stay on this for one more week before uh, sort of before moving on. I'm going to actually look at the same text, not all of it. Uh, We looked uh, last week at the whole chapter, 19 verses. I'm probably just going to center on about five of them today um, and look at this topic a little bit deeper. I also want you to know that I've got a resource for you that I think will be very helpful on the topic of fear. It's been helpful for me. Uh, I've got two resources. Here's the first one. Uh, This is out in our resource center. It's called Running Scared, Fear, Worry, uh, and the God of Rest by Ed Welch. And maybe you've had days where you felt like that dude's head right there. Uh, but we, this is a great resource. Some of the stuff I'm talking about today, uh, I've uh, sort of uh, benefited from or learned from Ed Welch in this book. You may not know, but we do have resources available for you. There, if you go to the cash register where the coffee is and turn around, there they are, and you can pay for them at the cafe center, at the cafe. So we have this. And then secondly, I've been really remiss on this, but we've had a book out there covering the whole book of Nehemiah. And this is a passion for faithfulness. So almost every Every Sunday, whoever's preached here has said, as J.I. Packer says, and when the preacher has said that, is referring to this book, A Passion for Faithfulness, Wisdom from the Book of Nehemiah. So this is available for you out there as well. You can just track through. It's very practical. It doesn't read like a typical commentary. It reads more like a typical Christian living kind of devotional style book, though it does go chapter by chapter through Nehemiah. So both of those are available for you. So it seemed like last week as I've engaged with people and through the week, it seemed like the topic of fear was something that was real. And and that's not really surprising. And here's why. Did you know, uh, and this may surprise you, this may surprise you if you're a Christian. This will probably really surprise you if you're not a, a believer in Christ, you're investigating the faith. If you're here as one who's kind of learning about Christianity, and I were to ask you, what's the most frequent command in the Bible? I mean, you might assume it's something like don't have sex or don't be angry, or don't be open-minded, or something like this. Uh, That might be what you think of the Bible as what it teaches. But here's the most frequent command in all of the Bible. Do not be afraid. Or Jesus would frequently say, fear not. Or don't fear. Something like this. And that's because the gospel addresses us at, at a core place 
Existentially, the gospel addresses us at the place of our fears so much that that is the most commonly, most frequently repeated command in all of the Bible because God comes with an answer to human fear, and all humans deal with fear, anxiety, and worry. It affects all of us, and some of us it's affecting in a real way in these current days. Fear is a powerful weapon from our spiritual enemy, Satan. And, and, and Nehemiah's enemies knew that, and so they attack him in the chapter we read last week. They attack him and sought to make him afraid. Their goal was to lead him to give up on his service to God. Fear came to tempt him so that he would give up in his service to God. And that's what the enemy wants for you as well. He wants to distract you, to discourage you, to dishearten you, uh, to bring hopelessness to your soul by fear so that you too will want to give up or at least, at least take a pause um, in your service of the Lord. So what I want to do is read the same passage I read last week, or at least most of it, and then I want to hone in on one particular section and see what do we learn about fear, what do we learn about God, and what difference does it make for us. So let's read uh, Nehemiah 6 verse 1. Let's hear God's word to us today. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Sanballat and Geshem said to me, sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you, have, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind, for they all want to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, son of Mahetabel, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired. 
that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and <clears throat> we simply acknowledge um, that each of us are tempted by worries, by fears, by anxieties. Lord, we look at our lives and there's so many uncontrollable circumstances um, around us. We are vulnerable people. And so today we ask you to speak to us a word of confidence in you, a word of security in you, a word of rest for fearful hearts today, a word of peace for the anxious mind and the worried soul. God, would you come and do what you do, what only you can do to grant, to grant that kind of peace no matter what we face? Lord, would you be glorified as we look at your word today? Speak to us. We need, we need your strength in the midst of our weakness. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked and we saw there's three attacks, three fear attacks in this passage. And so last week was really sort of an introduction to what I want to talk about today. I'm only going to look at the second one today. The second one begins in verse 5. And after, uh, after Nehemiah's enemies have invited him four times to come meet with them, uh, which was a very risky thing, they wanted to do him harm, he says. In verse 5, <clears throat> we find out that they send an open letter. Uh, in the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. Now, this is, we talk about an open letter when something is maybe put up on the internet uh, that is just speaking to a group of people. But this was, this was literally an open letter. This was an unsealed document so that as the person brought it to Nehemiah, it could be read by others. That's the idea, that people are reading what I am writing to you. And in the letter, what we find out is that Sanballat is telling his enemy is telling Nehemiah, and we don't know if this is true or not, but he's saying there is this tremendous, uh, you know, rising of rumors out there among the nations, which is like the whole world. So among the nations, there is this rising rumor uh, that you have only built the wall. That's what the whole book has been about, him building, leading the people to build the wall of Jerusalem so that it could be a fortified city so that the Jews could live in the city with protection. And so he says, you, the rumor is that you're building that wall because you are going to rebel and all the people are going to rebel. So this viral letter is to affect all of the people to hear, hey, the, you know what everybody's saying? They're saying that you're going to rebel. And he says, they're also saying, verse 7, that you've set up prophets to proclaim you as king. And so he's saying that, uh, Nehemiah, people are out there talking, and they're saying that you have set up prophets. So, and that's exactly what they do. They buy off prophets. But he's, they're saying that you have set up prophets to say, God has made me king. And here's the big threat of fear. And now the king will hear, verse 7, now the king will hear these reports. So the king of Persia, to whom the Jews are subject to, he's going to hear of this. He, uh, his name's Artaxerxes. He's going to hear of this. And when he does, any number of things could happen. He could shut down the project before it's finished. I mean, they're at the finish line, but he could shut down the project. He could call you back. Nehemiah used to work for him. He could call you back. He could kill you. 
because of the threat of citing a rebellion. And so that is the purpose. He's seeking to frighten them. And he says in verse 9, for they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So the goal is to frighten them so they give up and they stop the project that God has put them on. So that's what's happening. The goal is to pressure Nehemiah and the people with fear so that they quit. I mean, this letter is just fear speaking to Nehemiah. He says that. That's not my interpretation. That's what the scripture says. They did this to make us afraid. Fear is speaking. Now, can you hear what fear is saying in this text? Fear is speaking to Nehemiah's vulnerability. That's where fear attacks, typically, vulnerability. And fear says the rumors are spreading and you can't control them. You can't do anything to stop what people are saying. You can't do anything. That, this is beyond your reach. You can't control if the rumors reach the king. You can't control what the king will do if he hears the reports. So fear comes to Nehemiah and it reminds him that he is vulnerable and he is in some way subject to all this stuff that is happening, this kind of global attack that's happening outside of his control. And it's announcing to him, fear is telling him, that his only play to grasp some control in the midst of this is to go meet with his enemies that want to harm him. Do you see this? Stop the project. Here's the grab for control. If you will stop the project and come speak with your enemies, at least then you have some hope of of stopping this wave of assault that is surely out there. We don't know if anybody's talking, but that's what the letter says. Now, here's the reality. Everyone in this room is vulnerable. We are all vulnerable. And fear points this out to us and reminds us that we're vulnerable. Um, We're vulnerable to all kinds of things. What In this thing, what people say, what people do. You're vulnerable before your boss. You're vulnerable before your family. You're vulnerable in all kinds of ways. You're financially vulnerable. Your health is vulnerable. Everybody is vulnerable. We all try to have the illusion of protection and security, but everyone is vulnerable. And fear reminds us of this, and then fear tempts us, like it does Nehemiah, to do something to grasp some control so that we feel some kind of empowering against our vulnerability. We want to feel like we can direct what happens in our lives. We want to feel like we can write our own story. You know, metaphorically, we want to feel like the TV remote is in our hands and not someone else in the family room so that we can control the programming of our lives. We don't want somebody else to have the remote and we just got to watch what comes up on the screen subject to their control. We want to control the programming. That's a metaphor, but that's an accurate Uh, That's actually an accurate illustration for some of you to take home with you and apply accordingly. But I'm using it metaphorically. Fear plays on our vulnerability and then it tempts us to be self-reliant or it tempts us to rely on others. Who, Who can provide some security for me? 
It tempts us to grasp for anything and anyone but God. And in this case, it tempts Nehemiah to do something very unwise. Here's what fear does. Fear comes to you and says, you are vulnerable, and I would like to offer you a God substitute. Let me offer you something instead in place of God, something you can see, something you can experience, something that provides for you some security. For Nehemiah, the temptation where he can provide some security is this meeting. They say, so now come let us take counsel. Now that you've read the letter, come let us take counsel together. Here's what they're insinuating. They're insinuating is we're the surrounding governors. If you will come and meet with us, we can talk this through. And and if it does reach the king, we'll be able to vie for you. We can put in a good word with the king. this This is a promise of earthly protection. It's an assurance that we can squelch the rumors. Now, if you won't come meet with us, who knows what's going to happen? So it's, it's, a, it's a play for control. It's a temptation that if you will do this, you will sense some control and it will go well with you. In other words, you can proactively steer what's going to happen in this circumstance with regarding the slander as long as you want to do something very unfoolish, as long as you want to stop doing what God's called you to do, as long as you want to go meet with people that you know are seeking to harm you, As long as you want to do all of that kind of stuff, well, sure, it's fine. It's a God substitute. And when fear comes, rather than moving toward God, we often move towards a God substitute, something that calms our fears, something that brings, something that allays our fears, something that takes the edge off our fears, something that helps us feel more in control. I don't know if you travel much, but if you, if you do, notice this. Airport bars are always full. Now, in the morning, they may not be full at 8 o'clock if they're open, but there's always people in the airport bar. There may be nobody standing at Wendy's, which I would recommend. There may be nobody standing at Wendy's. There may be nobody in the gift shop, but there will be people, you know, from about 10 a.m. on, there will be people in the bar. Why? Well, because one of the most vulnerable feelings imaginable is to be sitting in a hunk of metal at 30,000 feet. I mean, have you, do you ever feel more vulnerable than when you're flying? Note this, in 2017 was the safest year in history for airline travel. Zero humans died from commercial passenger airline crashes. Zero. You are far more vulnerable walking across Page Street to the parking garage after this service than you are getting on an airplane. However, you don't feel vulnerable there. And so when we feel vulnerable, we grasp for something that allays the feeling of vulnerability. And so a few drinks will calm your nerves so that you can handle the vulnerability of flying. If you fear flying, there's a grasp. Maybe you fear, I can relate to this, maybe you fear for your children. And if you do, can I just let you know, there's gotta, it doesn't get easier with age. I feared for my kids when they were young, I feared when they were teenagers, now they're adults, I fear for them as adults, now I've got grandchildren, so I've got second generation fears going on. 
you don't grow out of fear, okay? You don't grow out of fear. It's your enemy always. So if you fear for your children, then maybe you enact hyper-strict protective rules. Maybe you're a helicopter parent thinking that somehow you can insulate them by your rules from ungodliness, insulate them from temptation. Maybe you think somehow you can guard them from physical harm their whole lives. And so what do you do? You create super strict rules because it gives you the illusion of control. It makes you think that you're not and your kids aren't vulnerable. Maybe you hear cuts are coming, layoffs are coming to your job, and you fear for your job. So what do you do? How do you, what do you do differently? Well, you realize this is a game of musical chairs, and the music's going to stop, and when it does, several of us aren't going to have a seat. So maybe you edge off uh, trying to help your coworker because your coworker's now a competitor. Maybe you choose to, you know, rather than admit error, rather than coming forth to your boss with some mistake you've made or something you've done that is wrong, rather than walk in the light and trust the Lord and be a worker with integrity, maybe you cover that because now there's a risk to honesty. There's some people that got to go, and if they know this about me, I might be that person. So you grasp at control of keeping your job by changing your behavior and how you relate to others. When we fear, we will do almost anything to feel some control. You snoop on your spouse who has given no indication of unfaithfulness, no desire for unfaithfulness, but you snoop because you have a fear of betrayal. You start a thousand different fad diets or maybe a thousand different avoid this and avoid that kind of things in your life because you read another report that that causes cancer or that causes some other kind of disease. Listen, I'm not talking about stewarding our bodies well and eating in a healthy way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, and you know who you are, I'm talking about the kind of person who is always fearful of can't eat that, can't eat that, can't eat that, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, in a hyper kind of a way. Why? Well, there's a fear of death that just governs. Well, if I do that, I may die. Or fear of cancer or some specific disease, that fear of heart disease that your dad died of. Again, I need to be careful. I'm not talking about generally being wise with health, but you show me someone who's hyper food, no, can't do that, 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 water, that's what I can drink, and only a certain kind of water. You show me that person, and every hyper health person I've ever met battles fears in their life. I'm not talking about healthy stewardship, I'm talking about hyper fear. Why? Because I want to control my life and I don't want to die. You're getting older. So you get some new clothing, something that will make you feel younger. You get a little work done to guard against showing your age because there is a fear of aging. I don't want to get older and lose my mind like my parents, lose my health like my parents. So fear of aging means I'm going to do something to grasp control. And I may look silly dressing like I'm 20, but at least I feel young again. Grasping what will secure me from the vulnerabilities that I face. You carefully post your the best pictures of your life on social media, hoping that someone likes what you post. And you check back to see if they have. 
And then you check back again, and you check back again, and they've only been up five minutes. Why? Because you crave the approval of others. You desire the affirmation of others. And do you know what that is? That's an inverted fear. It's the inverted fear of rejection. It's the inverted fear of being forgotten. It's the inverted fear of being unnoticed. And so there is a a craving for approval. I said something witty. I said something brilliant in my post. Is anybody liking it? Do they like me? Your schedule is filled with activities serving others. That's noble. But your motive is less pure. Mixed in is your fear of not being needed. It's the desire to be needed. It's the desire to be wanted. It's the desire that someone value. They need me in their lives. And so you run yourself. That's a fear. In each of these instances, we are grasping a God substitute when we feel vulnerable. We want assurance of things we can't control. We want assurances against aging, against death, against the, we want assurances of the love and the respect and the affirmation of others. And so we will grab God substitutes. In Nehemiah's situation, what is his temptation? What is his risk? Well, it could be to preserve his reputation. It could be what other people think. Look what's going on. Would you come and meet with us and we can clear up what other people think about you? We will think well of you and we'll pass that on. It could be the fear of harm or danger, losing his role. If I don't go meet with him, it gets to the king and I lose my job. It could be the temptation of a fear of failure. If I don't go meet with them and do what they say, and I do get pulled off the job, then I have failed. I had one job, as they say, I had one job, and it was to build this wall, and I will fail if I don't do this thing to control my destiny, even though it's unwise and even though it's wrong. It could be a failure, it could be a fear of the people that he leads. There's a constant temptation in leadership, whether you are a parent, a boss, a leader in the church, to, to uh, the craving to have the people you lead like you and appreciate you. A lot of bad parenting stems from craving the approval of our kids, especially as they get older. Bad decisions sometimes, rather than fearing the Lord and loving them. And so, he could fear that while all the people are hearing what's going on, they will reject me if I don't do what I can to work this situation out. Do you see how all of these fears are playing at the vulnerability, the temptation of fear? I mean, I can't say he's thinking all those things, but I'm saying those are the kind of things that happen when they are trying to make us afraid so that we give up. All of the the letter was to make them afraid so that they give up. Maybe he just wants to guard his safety. And I'd kind of like not to be beheaded. So maybe I'll go to the meeting. We run from our vulnerability when in reality we should embrace our vulnerability and run to God. And that's what he does here. He embraces his vulnerability and runs to God. Sometimes we just ignore our vulnerability and think it'll be okay. This is the guy who refuses to ever, and guy, I mean that in a gender situation, though a lady can be guilty of this as well. It's the guy who, never, who will refuse to go to the doctor or the dentist because he just does not want to hear the results. And as long as I don't get the results, I'm okay. 
I'm okay. I avoid my vulnerability. It's the person who doesn't really look at their finances and really work on their finances and really dig into the weeds of their finances and plan with their finances because what I don't know, if I look at them, I'll see my vulnerability. Ah, we're going to die. I'll see our, my vulnerability for my retirement and my future. And I'll think, oh, out there it's going to be really bad. I'm going to be a homeless senior. And so you start looking at, what well, it's just easier not to mess with my We just don't look. And then nothing will happen. It's the person who doesn't want to have the hard conversation because of the fear. If we go there, the person I love, I'm going to find out how fragile this relationship really is. And I'd rather live under the illusion that we're okay. But if I go there, if I bring that up, if I question that, if I correct that, then what's going to happen is I'm going to find, I might find out this relationship is very tenuous. It's not bringing up the gospel with your coworker, with your family member, with your neighbor, because you don't want the relationship to feel awkward. It's just okay now. And so if I bring up the gospel, there could be, and translate that, I fear their rejection more than I honor the Lord and love, their, love them. You don't apply for the new position at work, which would be a promotion with greater responsibility because you're afraid you might not be able to do the job, even though your boss says you should apply for it. But you've had a vote of confidence from her or from him, but you think, I don't want to do that because I might fail. I think much of the avoidance in our lives is not just laziness. It is often fear. It's often fear-based. Fear for our health, fear for financial security, fear of failure. Fear prophesies to us a false future. It tells us we're vulnerable, which is true, and something bad is going to happen, which is usually not true. Often fear will tell us things are going to happen. They tell Nehemiah all of these things thinking that this worst case scenario of it reaching the king will cause them to give up, will cause him to give up, but, but he doesn't. Fear tells us the worst will happen. It usually doesn't. But even if the worst does happen, or worse than what we imagine the worst happens, fear never tells us that God will be with us in our suffering. Fear never tells us that God will take our suffering, that situation that we imagined, and even if it's worse than we imagined, God, fear never tells us that God will take that very situation, that he'll be near us, that he will cause it actually to work for our good, is what Romans 8.28 says, that he will conform us to the image of Christ, that he will make us more like Jesus. See, part of winning the battle with fear is exposing its strategy, exposing its uh, exposing what it does in this text, for instance. I mean, there's other texts in the Bible that show the same thing or similar things. But it's, it's understanding what, how are they playing on Nehemiah's fears? How are they playing on the people's fears? What did they say to make them afraid? Winning the battle with a fear is exposing its strategy. And once you see its strategy, once you start imagining worst-case scenario and you realize the Holy Spirit would never be telling me right now that I'm going to get to that situation. I'm going to be alone and it's going to be terrible. The Holy Spirit would be telling me uh, each day has enough trouble of its own. So don't even worry about tomorrow. That's what Jesus said. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, Matthew 6, Jesus says, look, each day's got enough trouble of its own. Don't, don't worry about tomorrow because you got plenty 
to address today. I love the reality of Jesus. That is so good. So the Holy Spirit would be telling you, don't worry about tomorrow. I mean, be responsible, of course, but don't, don't worry and paint worst case scenarios and imagine how bad it's going to be that God's not going to be there. God will be there and God is right here right now. And we got, we got a wall to build right now. So let's do that. Let's do that. In my devotions on Tuesday morning, I was praying. This is, this is how I just learned a lesson. The thing about teaching is you, you often get the lesson ahead of time. And so I, I learned the lesson of just how, how strategic it is to think the difference of what does the Spirit tell us about the future and what does fear tell us about the future. And that fear comes to prophesy a false future. And even if it, what it prophesies happens, it leaves out the part about God being there. So at 7.30 on Tuesday morning, I had this thought. I think I need to talk more about fear. I think I need to do, I wasn't doing sermon preparation. I was in my devotions, but I was reading Psalm 27, which is about fear. And I thought, I almost thought about teaching Psalm 27 today, but I thought I, I, need, to, I need to teach again on this. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the office. I'm going to tell the guys, hey, I'd like to call an audible and I'd like to not go to chapter seven. I'd like to stay in chapter six. So I'm thinking, I'm planning this. Uh, I tell my wife before I go into the office, hey, I think I'm going to talk about fear again. Uh, and uh, I think I'm going to stay on that same thing. And she, she thought it was a good idea. I went in, talked to the guys. <clears throat> they thought it was a good idea. At 1130 on Tuesday, I get a call from my wife. She's <clears throat> at a doctor's appointment. She's coming out of a doctor's appointment, uh, which I didn't go with her because I didn't think this was going to be what would happen at the doctor's appointment. So she's coming out of a doctor's appointment where they tell her that via ultrasound, they found an abnormality and they will be testing to see if she has cancer. So that's, that's four hours after I decide I'm going to study fear this week. And uh, so I cannot tell you how many times this week I thought and I prayed and my wife and I talked with this, this in mind. It's probably not cancer. That's actually what the doctor said, but we got to check. I don't think she said it's probably not. She said it, it, there's reasons to believe it may not be, I think is what she said. It's probably not cancer. But if it is, God's already there, and he'll be with us when we get the diagnosis, and he'll be with her every step of the way through a healing or to heaven. Either way, God will be there. I, all we call it, it's probably not. I was thinking it's probably not. But if it is... God will be there. Fear says it is, and she's dead, and you're alone. That's what fear says. God says each day has enough trouble of its own. Uh, could we go ahead and get the diagnosis immediately instead of waiting all week? But let's, you know, that's what, but, but the Spirit says each day has enough trouble of its own. Trust me. That sustained us until Friday when she got a joyful call saying you don't have cancer. That's a, that's a great call. Some of us in the room don't have that call. Some of you have, have gotten the call that you do have cancer. But knowing how fear works and knowing the character of God makes all the difference. I, I think it would have been a much different week had I not had the assignment to be teaching this this week. That was the kindness of the Lord. So anytime I get an idea, hey, I'm going to do something different, um, watch out that week because something's coming, I'm sure. Hey, I think I'm going to teach again on anger and then I'm going to blow up at somebody. I don't know how it works. But anyway, Lord help us. Lord, help us. Each day has no choice. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he speaks the truth. 
He says, you are lying, Sanballat. This is not true. And then he prays, verse 9. They wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Notice what Nehemiah does. He does not deny his vulnerability. He doesn't go into some name it and claim it thing where he's, some of the name it and claim it stuff denies reality. There's no rumors about me in Jesus' name. Yes, there are rumors about you, Nehemiah, assuming that's really happened. He acknowledges his vulnerability. They want me to give up with my hands. God, strengthen my hands. If you pray, God, strengthen my hands, what are you praying? I got weak hands. I am vulnerable. I need God. He goes to God in prayer, acknowledging his vulnerability. He doesn't grasp at control and come up with a strategy for the meeting with his enemies. He goes to God and he asks for help. And what is so powerful about Nehemiah in the whole book is we found out he, is, he trusts the Lord. Chapter 5 says that he fears the Lord, and that is why he lives generously. Chapter 5 is about, the last section is about Nehemiah not oppressing the poor, but living generously because he fears the Lord. He means he's in awe of God. He's aware of God. God has opened the door for him to build the wall. God gave him favor with the king. God paid for the whole construction project through the king. God did all this stuff. He has a God awareness. So when this happens, he's like, you're lying. I'm not going to grasp for control. God strengthened me. He knows his God. Fear wants him to see his loss of control and tell him to drop your hands and give up. But rather he goes to the God who is in control and he says, strengthen my hands. I'm not giving up. Do you see this prayer? He doesn't pretend he's not vulnerable. He takes his vulnerability to God. He leans on God. We could say he collapses on God and asks for strength. The Bible commands us, do not be afraid. And it doesn't mean just have emotional self-control. It doesn't mean just exert your willpower. It doesn't mean just pretend, think happy thoughts and pretend you're not vulnerable. It means go to God and trust God with an awareness that in many ways, it means, let me say it this way, back up. In many ways, it means there's this pressing fear against me and I'm going to replace it with a greater fear, the fear of God. And by fear of God, I mean an awareness of his power and awe of his knowledge and awe of his majesty. Let me give you an illustration of how this works. And it's from, it's from the Bible. It's a Bible illustration. In Mark 4, <clears throat> the disciples are in a boat with Jesus. It's very interesting. Replacing earthly circumstantial vulnerability fear with fear of God. They're in a boat with Jesus. A bad storm comes up. He's been teaching so much. He's very tired. He's asleep in the boat. They freak out. It's valid to be afraid of a storm, okay? Like we're in a boat, we're going to drown. It's, it's reasonable to get to an adrenaline rush, and what are we going to do? So they're very afraid of the storm, so they go and wake Jesus up. And he says, why are you afraid? That's what he says, why are you afraid of the storm? He stands up in the boat, he says, peace be still, and the entire storm stops. Here's what Mark records after that. After Jesus says, peace be still, and and, and it stops, it says, they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, who is this? 
that even the wind and the seas obey him. What happened? We're in trouble. The winds are coming. They look to Jesus. They see the power of Jesus, and they have a greater fear. He is more powerful than the storm. I am more in awe of him than winds and waves rushing into our boat. Do you see how that works? A greater fear of God than our circumstances. Or think about this in Matthew uh, 10. Matthew 10, Jesus tells his disciples, the fear of persecution, this is a very real fear, not as much for us in America, but if you're in a place where you're persecuted for your faith, that's a very real fear. This is what Jesus says about that fear. Do not fear those who kill the body. Okay, like like you coming and killing my body, that, that would be really fearful. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. What's he saying? The fear of persecution should be, you should substitute that with the fear of God who is greater than those who threaten you. God who has your eternal destiny in his hand. He's saying, no God, be, Jesus is saying in the boat, be aware that I control everything. <clears throat> so you're okay. He's saying to the people of persecution, be, be aware there's a greater threat than persecution. That's standing before the holy God of the universe in judgment. And I've already taken care of that. That's what you, you should be more aware of me, the judge of the whole earth, the sovereign over the whole earth. That should be what you're most aware of. And when you have that perspective, then what others can do to me that loses its power. That fear which is talking to you, which is yelling at you, which is screaming at you, you are vulnerable, says, oh, my greatest vulnerability has already been taken care of. It's not denying vulnerability. It's bringing our vulnerability to God and seeing his grandeur, his majesty, and his power. That is what calms fear. That's why he says, Lord, strengthen my hands. I need your Strength. Your greatest vulnerability is one that most people never consider. Your greatest vulnerability is not your health, your money, your job, your spouse, um, being rejected. Your greatest vulnerability is standing before the holy God of the universe and giving an account for your life. And the Bible says when that day comes, and it will come for each of us, that all of us will be found guilty up against God's measure of standard, his standard of perfection. That's your greatest vulnerability. And you may not have been feeling it until 30 seconds ago when I mentioned it, but you are never more vulnerable than at that moment. And that's why Jesus came and lived a perfect life and gave his life on the cross and died for our sins and rose to defeat the power of sin and the power of death. The reason God did that, the reason Jesus did that was to forgive our sins, to give us eternal life, to reconcile us to the Father. He's doing more. There's more going on there than the forgiveness of sin, but that is the greatest thing that happens for us individually, that we can stand before God, that we can be made right before God. You have no greater need than to be made right before God, whether you feel it or not. That's your greatest vulnerability. And Jesus answers that by becoming the God-man who dies for our sins. If you believe in Christ, if you've turned from your sin, believed in Christ, his spirit dwells in you. He's given you new life. If you're a believer, 
a Christian, a Christ follower, united with Jesus, his child, whatever language you want to use, if that is you, you've been born again, if that is you, then Jesus has already taken your greatest vulnerability because it is an eternal vulnerability. And if God has already taken your eternal vulnerability, you can be confident and certain that he will care for you in your temporal vulnerabilities, either removing the problem or walking with you closely through the midst of it. That's our God. It's great news. It's great news. His death and resurrection destroy soul vulnerability eternal vulnerability for those who believe so that we are forever secure. And this is key in our battle with fear. The cross and the resurrection is the foundation of freeing us from the fears that come from within and without. It is the foundation of our confidence in God. It is the greatest promise that can be made, that he will see us to the end and he will care for us for all eternity in a new heaven and a new earth when he restores all things. And we will be part of that. It is the greatest promise imaginable and it answers all of the challenges that we face ultimately. The gospel is good news in your battle because it replaces temporal fear with a greater fear. That is a greater awareness, a greater awe, a greater grace, a greater gratitude for Jesus. I'm going to make two applications and we're done. The first application is for a few of us, but I feel like I need to say it to be responsible. This is not for the majority, but this is for maybe a few of us. If you live with life-controlling, debilitating fear that, that makes your life difficult, you, you, you've, you've almost lost the ability to function because you've been gripped with fear. If that's you, you may not even be here today because of that. You may be listening to this podcast at home. But if you live with such fear that it affects your health, it affects your life, um, everything I said here is relevant. Everything I said here is true. Everything I said here can be helpful, but you might need to get at a place where you can even process biblical truth. You may need to start by seeing a physician. I'm serious, getting a health evaluation. That'd be the responsible thing to do. If fear is so gripping you that you're a danger to yourself or you don't know if you can continue, then you may need to get some help to get to the place where you can begin mentally to process the kind of truths I'm talking about. The second group of people, last week, I made a flippant comment. I thought about it later. It's from the section where Nehemiah, his life is being threatened. And I said, probably no one here experiences that. Well, probably not. But if you have the threat of danger, physical danger, if you are living under the threat of your physical safety, maybe someone has harmed you in the past and is threatening to harm you again. I'm thinking about specifically something like domestic abuse or something like that, domestic violence. If you are living under that fear, then trusting God looks like this, contacting the authorities. That is trusting God. Trusting God, if you are being threatened with physical harm or you are being physically harmed, if you're being physically hurt, trusting God says this, God has ordained civil authorities. God has ordained the police, for instance, to protect us from evildoers. And so the, you can trust the Lord by going 
to the authorities. You, sh- you should do that if you're in that kind of situation. The reason I'm clarifying this, because my comment last week, is I don't want you to think that if someone has harmed you or someone is threatening to harm you, that trusting God just means I didn't go to the meeting like Nehemiah, I just prayed. Yeah, you should pray and you should pick up the phone and make a call. That's what you should do. Now, for most all of us, the kind of fears that we're talking about are not the kind that control our entire life or is a physical, imminent physical threat. For most of us, it is grasping the nature of God in our daily lives. And so here's what I'd recommend you do. I'd recommend you get the book for one thing that I recommended earlier, but even more importantly, I would recommend that you take some time to focus on the character of God. And here's how I would do it. Here's what's been helpful for me. I would, I would camp out in the Psalms. I would camp out in the Psalms. You may be trying to read the Bible in a year. If you're trying to get through the whole Bible in a year and you're gripped with fear, the, the best thing may not be to read the whole Bible. I would camp in. I would read a Psalm a day. Or if you've got some time, I've done this before too. If you read five Psalms a day, you'll fit, you can read the whole book of Psalms in a month. But it's, the goal is not how much can I read. The goal is applying it. In the book of Psalms, we quoted a psalm today which said, Lord, I remember your works. That's how I'm confident in my fears. I think of you. Um, There is a ton of fear in the Psalms. Lord, my enemies are coming against me. Lord, they they want to do me harm. Are you going to rescue me? Where are you, God? Fear is all over the Psalms. People honestly crying out their fears to God. The Psalms are not sanitized. They're not cleaned up. They're not good Christian, let's be, have no problems and act like we've all got it all together. The Psalms are raw and authentic and real. And it's people oftentimes crying out in need. And it's a revelation of who God is and how he meets us in our need. Confidence. The Psalms give us confidence in God. Starts with vulnerability, see the character of God, and then I have confidence bringing my vulnerability to God in prayer. So here's what I would do. I would read a psalm a day. I'd just work my way through the whole psalms. You could do it in 150 days. If you miss some days, you know, maybe, maybe, that's, uh, maybe it takes you six months, something like that. But every day I would read a psalm, and then I would write down, what do I learn about God in this psalm? One characteristic. He's faithful. Would that be really helpful in your fear? He's powerful. That's very helpful in my fear. Um, He's, he's patient. Man, do I need to know that with my fear again today. Uh, he's forgiving. Uh, he's just. Oh, I need to know that when I fear something that's going to happen to me unjust, whatever. So what does it teach me about God? Number two, what does it teach me that God has done or is doing? He, rescue, he delivers his people. Oh, I need to remember that. That's what he does. He forgives our sins. I need to know that. He, he, he is our refuge protecting us safely from our enemies. I need to know that. So what does he do? And then lastly, what difference does it make? What do I learn for me today? What do I learn about God? He's all powerful. What do I learn that God does? He is my safety when I am threatened. What difference does it make to me today? I can be confident today as I think about this, Lord, who you are and what you've done. Now open my mind to see you as my place of safety, that I don't have to grasp for control, that I can bring my vulnerability to you today, every day for six months. And if God doesn't meet you at all during that time, if he doesn't help you at all and reveal anything, I will give your money back for this sermon, okay? Which you didn't pay for. But money back guarantee. 
you, God will touch you through his word if you ponder and spend time with it. He will help you. And the, 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 the baseline is to see him for what he is, what he has done, and his grace to us in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we want to see his grace, see his mercy, his care for the needy. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.